0: I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. We're a podcast for curious, enthusiastic, and engaged readers. Our job is to help you discover new books in all genres, give you unique insights into your favorite authors, and of course, keep you up to date with what's going on in the literary world. We are joined today by Tim Wu. He is a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. He is also an author, policy advocate, having written about uh, net neutrality theory, private power, free speech, copyright, and antitrust. His books, The Master Switch and The Attention Merchants, have won deserved wide recognition and awards who was also worked for federal and state government, including a stint at the White House on the National Economic Council. He was a law clerk for Justice Breyer. He's been named to Politico 50, twice to America's 100 Most Influential Lawyers, and in 2017 was named to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He joins us today as the author of his latest book, The Curse of Bigness. In this short, persuasive, provocative, and historically grounded book, Tim shows us how allowing unrestricted growth of concentrated private power can feed an appetite for nationalist and even extremist leadership. I am delighted to have this important conversation. Tim, welcome to Just the Right Book.
1: Sure, a pleasure to be here.
0: So, Tim, the subtitle of your book is Antitrust in the New Gilded Age. So why don't we ground this conversation in talking about the original Gilded Age? Mm
1: -hmm. Well, I I think uh, we have a bad way of remembering the original Gilded Age. We sometimes just think there's a lot of dinner parties, fancy times, but, you know, because movies contribute that – but I think, uh, I want us to recall the economic conditions of the Gilded Age. So there were two things I think were really important. One, you had an enormous gap in wealth and income between the poor and, and, and the rich. So there was the emergence of a new class of ultra-rich, something that had never been seen before. At The same time, and I think parallel, is you have the economy reorganized into a series of trusts, which were monopolies. So you had one company for, for every industry and uh, destruction of, of all the little companies and small businesses. And you, know, you had Standard Oil, which everybody knows, but you also had, you know, trust for tobacco and cigarettes, another monopoly for rubber, for nails, so on and so forth. So that was the condition. Centralized, unequal, I, I, I think there was a reason that it gave birth to s- so many extreme political movements at the time and, mm-hmm. it, and eventually very much changed the way Americans live.
0: And the conditions that allowed these trusts... To exist. They were created as a mechanism for doing business. And how long were they able to monopolize what was going on? And then who became concerned about it, and why?
1: Right. So, so they monopolized their industries. Uh, they they had the idea that competition was bad, small business was bad. That the future lay in large sort of monopolized businesses that would run every industry and be perfectly, efficient and super efficient, supposedly. And you know. Run by one great man, mm-hmm. a- and that's the way they organize. They also enrich the, the people to talk uh, top. That was another reason, and enriched yeah. and, enrich that and the, had a lot to do with. Uh, so two
0: of the prominent people in those days are names that are known: yes. John D. Rockefeller and uh, J.P. Morgan.
1: Yes, and they they actually figure in the book as well. And yeah, that that was that was the vision. Uh, but, you know, it engendered some of the, you know, since the American Revolution, some of the greatest popular uprisings, I think, in, in U.S. history. You know, people were angry. They didn't think this was the American way. The uh, United States had been a country of rough equality for a mm-hmm. long period, you know, sort of the frontier, and uh, no one could believe it. And so it led to a lot of developments. You um, Actually, had socialist movements, anarchist movements, but also less radical movements, um, The antitrust movement being one of them, the idea that we should break the trust that we were against the, the the trustification of the American economy. That led ultimately to, to the Sherman Act, which is big in this book.
0: Right. And so the Sherman Act established a principle of what was a monopoly and what was um, necessary to break up. How was the definition of the Sherman Act defining that? Because that's certainly been weakened and changed yeah. over time.
1: Well, the Sherman Act was um, very broad uh, – it just said that monopolization was illegal. It said that uh, agreeing on restraints of trade were illegal. So it basically illegalized the trust form. And uh, it, it was just a few sentences, really. And uh, it, it took, frankly, uh, uh, Theodore Roosevelt and, and the courts to, to activate it, to turn it into a law that, that made actually made monopolization illegal and actually broke up trusts into small pieces. So that, that was uh, uh, the tenor of the law. The idea was that to monopolize an industry was illegal, and if you did that, you would be broken into pieces.
0: So the Supreme Court justice that has been identified, closely aligned with the Sherman Act, was Brandeis, who you talk about in the book. And Brandeis had a wide view of it. And there was one, um, I'm not sure if this is his language, but this is language uh, from the book, that I thought was fascinating and I don't know that it's the way people even think of antitrust coming close to. But you say the broad tenor of antitrust enforcement, the broader goals of enforcement should be animated by a concern that too much concentrated economic power will translate into too much political power and thereby threaten the constitutional structure, meaning it could actually preempt government sovereignty.
1: Yes, that, that was a big tenor of, of the popular movement against the trusts, and maybe I should have said it earlier. But people were angry. They, they felt that uh, not only were the trusts so economically powerful, but they had government in their pocket, that they had created, the word was, an invisible government that hovered above the one you see out there and, and told them what to do. It was a famous editorial cartoon in the period. Which has you know Congress in the foreground sitting in session, and behind them you have the great monopolists just sort of mm. deciding what the actual decisions are, so as much as anything the the philosophy of the of the Sherman Act uh, was to to smash the idea that monopolies would run not just the economy but frankly the whole country mm. and in that period you know they, they had a more or they had great influence particularly over the Republican party before uh, roosevelt uh, they they basically dictated economic policy for the United States and, that, and eventually people said we just cannot stand this.
0: And so how does that then lead to the possibility of a fascist government or an authoritarian? Because I thought about this. I uh, had the opportunity last week to interview Madeleine Albright for her book called Fascism, a Warning. And she talks about other warning signs that we should – Look at, But one of the things that she also talks about is how inequality begins to make people lose faith in a democratic government as being able to help them. How does antitrust and monopolies exacerbate that condition?
1: Yeah, so that's, that's good. I think that for me the place to look for that is the immediate uh, post-World War II situation mm-hmm. where people are studying carefully the examples of Japan and Germany. And one of the things that Japan and Germany both had was uh, monopolization, cartelization of their economies. They did not have antitrust laws. They did not wage war on the trust. In fact, they accepted uh, and and even promoted the idea of a trust economy. And some of the results of that were incredible economic suffering, incredible concentration of wealth into a small group, and a people who felt that they were being left behind, that they were... Uh, unrepresented in this process, and that uh, I think uh, most people agree led to the kind of volatile conditions mm-hmm. that led fascist leaders able to, to take power by appealing to economic misery. Now, there, there's a subtle thing that happens, very complicated, which is that in fact Hitler's uh, leaders, like Hitler, were supported by the monopolists. Mm. Ultimately, so there's there's two sides to it. One is this ec- widespread economic inequality and misery. The other is the ability to cooperate. Uh, a fascist leader, if they they uh, are in cooperation with, uh, you know, just a couple of monopolists, they suddenly have this incredible union of private and public power, mm. which was the story of Japan, the story of Germany. You know, private and public allied in this effort to take over the world. And I think those economic origins of fascism must be always watched. So domination of the economy by monopolists tends to create this, this inequality, concentration of wealth at the top, broad-based misery, which creates the conditions for a revolution, for, mm-hmm. for, for a strong leader who's going to fix things, for a savior, especially if there's been an economic depression, right. some kind of crash. You know, we even saw some of this in, in the United States in the, in the 30s as well. Uh, but the fascist leaders, there's another direction – there's a second step, which is very subtle but very important, which is having so much private power in so few hands means that if, they, if a leader like Hitler can gain the support of, of a majority or even even a even decent a subset, number, even right? a subset. I mean, I've been studying the German history very carefully. And, you know, the monopolists at first, they were a little bit resistant. But eventually, they kind of talked each other into it. And it wasn't that many people. Mm like 8 or 10 maybe, heavy industry it's only like 5 or 6 guys decide this is our guy
0: and you know part <laughs> of part of when you study that time or history is this is a line actually from a novel but it's from Philip Roth's uh, book plot against america but it's something i think about a lot when you think about economic policy and there was a line in the book that said it was the kind of event that the present considered unlikely and the future considered inevitable And when you think about uh, pre- or early Hitler Germany, a lot of decisions that were being made, there was no one really – there were very few, if any, people understanding the unintended consequences of the coalition of the monopolies in Germany.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes, I think that's right. Uh, You know, the Germans had taken a different way. They they thought the American – so America waged war on its own and The Germans thought that that was foolish. Um, I, yeah, I've been very uh, stru- struck by reading about that period, by the understanding that a monopolist is in its way a dictator, hmm. right? And in its way has very similar interests to, to a nationalist leader or a, or a fascist leader, because neither of them really wants accountability. The, right. the one doesn't want competition, the other doesn't want voters. But in some sense they're quite similar, and so the danger of, of a, fa- a return to fascism is the, the fear that the monopolists and the, and the leader realize their, their interests in common. And mm. that's what happened in Germany. And that's what happened in Japan. Uh, happened in Italy as well and in Spain. And so th- that's what I think we need to be on the watch for. And so the antitrust law is like a safeguard. It, it prevents a private power that could become as great as public or an ally to public power in ways that are dangerous. It has this incredibly important constitutional role of limiting private power.
0: So you would think that the Sherman Act, which led to some of the largest economic growth that we had in the 50s and the 60s. So now tell me what happens in Chicago that begins to undermine the Sherman Act that had been operating quite well since the beginning of the 1900s.
1: Right. So uh, in the early 60s, uh, there began to be a group of thinkers in in Chicago who, who challenged the entire premise of the antitrust laws. Uh, they're anti-government people, kind of a libertarian. Although they're very socially conservative, uh, their their leaders are a man named Aaron Director, sort of not well known. A much better known fellow named Robert Bork, who's, who's not known for this, right? <laughs> right? He was
0: known for not getting on the Supreme Court. Yes, yes.
1: Uh, Both these men were powerful intellects, uh, talented writers. Bork is uh, an amazing lawyer, uh, you know. And, and their argument. As they say the antitrust law is out of control. You know, it's letting the government mess with, with companies. And uh, we need not to have no antitrust law, so they didn't they didn't say throw it away. They said it has to be constrained always by this idea of consumer welfare. Mm-hmm. Is the law making prices lower for people or not? And that is the only thing you should ever be thinking about and not any of these broader political or, or broader economic goals.
0: And was that any part of the opinion that led to the Sherman Act?
1: Uh, you mean the legislation? Consumer,
0: yeah, the legislation. Was there consumer welfare as part of the language there?
1: Uh, no. but they, So when they passed the Sherman Act Congress, they, they had a lit, whole bunch of concerns. They said, you know, these trusts are big, they're evil, they're politically dangerous, their prices are too high. You know, so, so it was one of their concerns. Yeah. You know, high monopoly prices. No, nobody means
0: you're controlling the price.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, it is a bad thing. You know, no, no one likes it when you know the drug company charges you a know, hundred thousand dollars for their for their cancer pill. That that's right. monopoly pricing. So, right. so price uh, gouging was one of the concerns. Bork turned it into the only concern, and also said it was only really a concern in in a certain when when it was uh, two companies agreeing on a price. So he uh, price very, fixing price fixing yeah it 's a very narrow, narrow conception, and you know fundamentally it was it was an attack on the sherman act itself the idea, the attack and, and you know, ultimately in in bork 's vision it took us back to the laissez faire uh, views of the of the first guild page
0: that government should not be interfering in the operation of business, so tim let 's take a like a little bit of a pause in another direction before we go on to what the ramifications of, uh, of that was so if i were going to, if i were going to ask you to present a counter argument to your own argument right so people would say you get efficiencies when you have uh, large companies that uh, creative destruction is part of the advancing the world you can't have Government messing around in business—they that's not their role. They should each be separate. So, counter your own argument about why uh, leaving large companies in place and not having the government interfere might look. What does that conversation look like? I
1: mean, it leads us right back to the Gilded Age. I think. Yeah. I mean, I think we, we actually we're at the end of a forty-year experiment of trying. We've basically had a very limited antitrust enforcement. In and, the and last 20 years and, 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 you know, for 40 years and 20 years, uh, very little. You know, some, but, but not anything like they had originally enforced the law. And, and we're at the tail end. And, you know, you, so I think the best answer is an experiment. What do we have? We have, uh, you know, wage growth has been stuck for, for 40 years. No, nobody's gotten a raise in real terms for right. 40 years. Um, you have an incredible concentration of income and wealth. You have most, uh, most industries dominated by oligopolies, some by monopolies. And, you know, how's that working for the average consumer, average person? Sometimes they have some cheaper prices, but I think overall they're pretty angry. Yeah, And we, we're seeing again what we saw in the Gilded Age, a return to much angrier politics. Mm. Uh, people, I mean, I think there's a reason there's books about fascism's out right now. We're, we're sort of back in this situation where people are so angry about the economy, so angry they can't get what they want. Yeah. So they're willing to listen to anyone who says they're going to fix it and point to like the enemy.
0: Well, and they feel failed by yes. everyone. They feel yes. – f- they've been failed by large corporations. They've been failed by government. They're, they're just left out in the cold. Yes, And so one thing I thought about as –
1: So sorry to interrupt you, but there's no, your answer. Ahead. No, I mean so there's the answer. We we we've tried it, Bork. We tried the Bork system for for from 1981 onwards, and I just don't think we have led to an economy that really works for people. And right. you can see that from the way people are voting and acting, from the widespread economic discontent. So nice try, but let's try something different.
0: And I think that w- we talked a little bit before um, we went we went live that as uh, so I'm a bookseller, so I'm clearly in a business that has seen the impact of an unfettered behemoth that the capital markets have allowed to uh, use their free capital for a very long time. And I've often thought about writing a piece called, What's the Cost of the Lowest Price? Because people are so attracted to the low price that they're not thinking that of the collateral damage, that their main street's gone, that their selection's gone, that their you know, Amazon doesn't have a phone that they're calling voicemail at a pharmaceutical or an insurance company, and they're, you know, they're you have to hit forty-seven numbers before you find out you're still not going to get anything done. So, what do you think will persuade um, the average person and therefore politicians to begin to address antitrust as a mechanism to combat the um, income gaps that, and inequality that exist.
1: So I, uh, I have a number of thoughts on that. Um,
0: I thought you might. Yeah. So
1: <laughs> let, let's start with, with you know, ordinary people. I, I think we all like lower prices. Let's not. You know, yeah. Who wants to pay more?
0: But I, I do Particularly think. Particularly of stagnant wages.
1: Right. That's right. But I do think, you know, this is asking a lot, but uh, a transformation of American consciousness is important and a sense that when you You think about paying things differently. You think about supporting things. What am I supporting Mm. here? It doesn't mean you want to overpay. But I mean, a lot of people, for example, have begun to buy healthier uh, food Mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, animals that weren't uh, tortured or something. Not everyone, but many people do that. And they feel like, well, I want to support sort of sustainable practices. I think more people are buying from people who make their own things or smaller business or, you know, buying directly from farmers. I I think that movement is afoot and it really transforms the way you think about, money and what you spend. And maybe, I mean, the funny thing is we like the cheapest price, but then we buy too much stuff. Yeah, you know, like it's what Americans right, right. We have our tomes are full of junk and stuff. And it was all like, got it at a good deal, but like, what is it doing for exactly. us? So that, that's a big change in consumer consciousness. But I think it's important because as you said, once you start to see the side effects of everything driven always by the lowest price, you start to realize that it has these side effects you, you don't fully um, see. Um, as for antitrust and, and the political will, I think it's there. Mm-hmm. I think there are – you know, you can leave this – this low price conversation is one thing. I think there's many areas where people have seen it enough. They have the same kind of anger that we saw in the 19th century. They don't understand why a, a monopoly pharmacy company should be able to charge $100,000 for a cancer drug. They don't understand why there's only three or four airlines and, you know – You want to bring your baggage, it's $30 or whatever, and they just keep raising fees and adding more fees for things that used to be free, and it doesn't get better. You know, things are supposed to get better in American capitalism, not worse, not more expensive. And they see so many areas, they're ready for breakups. Now, they may not have the economic theory in mind, but they know when things have gotten too big, industry is too fat, and it's taken too much money from people and giving too little to workers, I think the time is ripe for a new round of trust busting. And I'm not surprised. I think this decade is the decade.
0: Well, I'm I'm thrilled to hear that because I do think that one of the things that I think will contribute to it that I hear increasingly in conversations and and in conversations up and down the food chain Mm -hmm. is a sense that we are powerless in the face of a pharmaceutical price in – Uh, the insurance that we can access. And, you know, think about when you're online and you want to get something and it's Facebook or somebody, and you can either read 144 pages that say, I agree to this, or just say, I agree and move on. You have no idea what you've agreed to. Um, And do you think politicians will begin to have the will to think about it? Or do you think it'll happen in the courts?
1: I think they should, or they're going to lose their offices. That's what I think. Right. I think that that's what's happening right now. I think the real divide in America are between American politics right now uh, is almost left less of the left to right divide. Although oh, it's still there in uh, certain areas, but, but on are beginning
0: to meet.
1: And on economic issues like this, right. which is like, why isn't someone doing something about this? I, I'm, I'll turn to pharmaceuticals again. When I was in government, we had this problem. It's still a problem of uh, jacking of prices on on. Drugs are out of patent. Do you remember all these things? Oh that yeah. The um, uh, what was the most famous thing? That uh,
0: the, the uh, EpiPen.
1: Yeah, the EpiPen. The EpiPen, uh, Daraprim. All these drugs. You know, take something it would be like thirty dollars. There's other. When I was recent, reading about it lately this infant uh, seizure thing, so a baby mm-hmm. will have a seizure. The drug was and they're from- orphan drugs. No, this is an out of patent. No, it's not orphan. It's out of patent. Somebody owns it. They moved the price from four hundred dollars a treatment to thirty six thousand dollars a treatment. Mm. So that is literal baby killing because some babies, if they don't have this drug, they die. So people don't understand it. When I was in government, I was trying to – I I worked both in the state and there's something wrong when we as a system can't do something about that. Right. Right. And I think the politicians who don't realize there's a problem are doomed and are going to lose their offices.
0: So, Tim, you (laughs) were in enforcement in the Obama White House what were the challenges to you pursuing some of these ideas then? Or, did, or was there a moment then that you were not as clear that it was a problem?
1: No, I, I, I thought it was a problem. I was an inside agitator. I will say it is true that the reality distortion field inside Washington is for real. The kind of things that people want and the kind of things that even people call themselves liberal think are possible are, are, are so far apart. Yeah, You know, this pricing is a big thing. Well, the big thing in, in D.C. is, well, you can't mess with prices. And I said, like, where in the Constitution sa- does it say that prices can't be – you know, if someone is jacking prices out of control, why is that – Some oh, no, prices need to float free. You can never touch prices. That was one of the sort of mantras in Washington. Oh, you know, you can't just uh, target a monopoly because it's big. Oh, it, there's all these things. And 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 these are you – know, even people who are liberal. Conservatives are even more. We have a problem where – the market has become so sovereign you know has its own kind of immunity to laws yeah. uh, that i say it again I don't think people, people aren't gonna...
0: i don't think people realize you, you know that to me is a fascinating concept that people have not quite focused on you use that term in the book about mm-hmm. government sovereignty yeah and i think people are not understanding how that's the companion to the loss of control that they're feeling over things that impact their daily life.
1: That's right. So, so the sense of you know what is possible is, is severely constrained. Now, maybe it's starting to shift. Uh, you know, there's on the right and left, people are getting elected who have different view of what yeah. is possible. And much of this, of what, much of the idea of what is impossible, is not in the constitution. It's not even in the laws. It's just in this kind of mental furniture that people in in, in Washington. Have and so I, I think it's changing, and I one of the areas uh, I think will be a rekindling of serious antitrust enforcement. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to see.
0: Who do you think ought to be uh, uh, the object of that first?
1: So I have a long list of targets. <laughs> where, I, okay. where do you want to start? Let's have them. Uh, I have a long. I have. I, I kind of a, a, I, In fact, I wrote up a, a, a big ten of the big cases that uh, government should be bringing but mm-hmm. hasn't hasn't brought. Um, I can start in tech. Uh, I believe, and I'm working towards a breakup of Facebook, mm-hmm. which I think has wrongly been allowed to, to dominate social networking um, and has had disastrous results, both for American elections and also for our privacy. Yeah. So I, I can't, I can't see any reason not not to break them up. Not to go up. after them. Yeah. Um, I think we made a mistake allowing the airlines to 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 consolidate, consolidate so 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 extremely. So I think their target. This one might not be so well known. Some of them are smaller, but concert tickets. I got very interested in concert oh, tickets. I, ticket
0: that that's <laughs> like one of my pet peeves. Uh huh. Because do you see how many fees they add on now?
1: Yes, I, I, I do. That, that's called uh, monopoly pricing. That's what we call it. So antitrust. that's
0: Ticketmaster being able to buy Live Nation. Yes, Ticketmaster. This the latest, right? That was
1: a colossal error, unfortunately, made in the Obama administration. And, uh, you know, I <laughs> was part of that administration. Uh, a colossal error. And uh, since then, both concert prices have gone up and up and up. Ticket prices, uh, the fees have gone up and up and up. There's nothing controlling them. They have no, they have Talk barely about no control. Yeah, they just do what they want, and you know, uh, that has that's been terrible for for consumers. Um, uh, we've talked about there's so many areas in, in pharmaceuticals you can start. Uh, like you need an entire agency devoted to rooting out the anti-competitive practices in the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, it is at every level of the industry. It's dark. We're finding that generics are, are price-fixing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I do have time. Generics are supposed to make things cheaper.
0: And don't you have in the book how much the pharmaceuticals spent on lobbying to block Medicare from being able to negotiate drug prices? Yes. If they invested $116 million, I think you said, in their yes. return – Was something like seventy-seven thousand percent?
1: Yes, because they, from that investment, have uh, you know, there's no no negotiation, so they enjoy an extra profit of ten or fifteen billion dollars a year. That's so. It's one hundred and sixteen million sounds like a lot of money to invest in lobbying, but but when you're talking about billions every year, it's actually a great one of the best investments. It's better than buying uh, Amazon stock.
0: So, so Tim, there's two ways to get at anti. And so I want to break them down a little bit. One is that you don't approve mergers and acquisitions. Yeah. So the example of that would be uh, when Facebook acquired Instagram, they looked like they were a baby little company and it was vertical integration. It was video, not text, and therefore different. So you might miss that. But then the second way is breakups. Yes. A- am I hearing – uh, that you would rather see as the first step towards antitrust activity breakups or on the merger and acquisition side?
1: I'm afraid I'm going to say both. Okay. i afraid I'm going to say both. Well, some of the breakups are undoing of mergers that were wrongly approved. Right. Um, the so two we just talked the about. The two we just talked about are good examples. Uh, but yes, I also believe you should have uh, you know, breakups of of firms that have just sat uh, too long in a monopoly position and are keeping out competition. So I believe in that. But I I think you are right to hear that I have as an immediate target reversing some of the obvious merger mistakes of the last mm-hmm. last twenty years. And right. I, I think that's a full program. I think any say presidential candidate who took that as their as their mandate and said this is what we will deliver will have the support of the people and the wind's at their back.
0: And do you think enforcing antitrust will also dilute the other thing that's driving our laws, which are lobbyists?
1: I believe so. I think that... That's uh, a
0: little more tenuous, that connection, isn't it? I
1: I agree. I think think it depends. I I think, on average, the more concentrated an industry is, the better it lobbies. So... You know, if you have an industry of a hundred people, hundred small sometimes they can get their act together, but sometimes often they, they can't. Um, but if you have an industry it's just three players, they you know, they have all their conferences the together. The automotive industry, yeah, let's yeah. say. Yeah, they get together, they organize, they have an industry, trade association, I think they lobby better. And so overall, by by weakening dispersing companies, I think it tends to change. Also I'll make an Important, Slightly academic point. Some of these mergers are vertical. So you had two parties who used to be enemies when it came to lobbying, suddenly are made friends by right. a merger. Right. So you had a balance of power in Washington. A good example is um, in tele- telephony, phone system. You used to have long distance. I don't know if your listeners still remember long distance. But yeah, <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> there used to be long distance companies and local companies yeah. and they fought it out. But then the Bush administration let them all buy each other. Right. So now they all lobby together. So th- those are the clearest cases. We are letting legislative foes become uh, unified. So,
0: Tim, the counter argument would be that uh, take a country like France, that they have uh, protected small businesses, and the criticism is they've become protectionist, meaning that bureaucratic costly, ineffective businesses are allowed to thrive because they're a protected class. How do you avoid going to that end of it?
1: You know, we're so far away from that possibility. It's not a problem. (laughs) (laughs) We're so far away. And the the way the French do things is a little different. Um, In general. Yes. I mean, I I like France. Actually, frankly, I enjoy the fact that – you know, Paris is full of, of uh, small businesses. New York, have, we have so many boarded up shops now in New York. That's a rent problem, yeah. a different problem. But um, no, I think we're so far away from that problem. And the main onus is actually to protect competition, which is protecting small business. You know, it is protecting a market where you have multiple competitors right. uh, going at each other. Right. So we're not talking about, you know, total uh, isolation. And I think people can actually, uh, you know, I think there's there's propaganda in the United States that – that says, "Oh, we don't want to be like France, or we don't want to be like uh, 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 Taiwan or or Denmark." But you, you go to those you go to those countries. Uh, I think the greatest achievements, the role models, need to be countries that have managed to build uh, a sustainable middle class. Uh, countries that don't have that are wealthy, but don't have this massive gap between rich and poor. That's yeah. what we need to be looking for. You know, look at Denmark. Uh, Taiwan, Taiwan is where. Uh, it's, it's astonishing what they've done there. And it has a lot to do with small business. Yeah. You know, it's not just an economy with one or two big businesses. They fail and then everyone, everyone's unemployed. It's, right. like, you know, it's like an ecosystem. Everyone knows if you just have one tree in the forest that dies, that's dangerous. You need to have a diverse ecosystem. So small and medium-sized businesses have a proven track record of creating broad-based prosperity for, for, for an economy. And that's what we need to try to get to in the United States.
0: So, Tim, that brings me –
1: Can I back him and say yes. that's what we were? <laughs> that's what this right. country was. And I'll was say built that also. on. It was built on that basic idea. It's not alien. You know, this is one reason the United States has often been different than like South America where you often just had these monopolized sort of dictator-like um, uh, monopolies. We had a nation – still have to some extent thriving small, medium-sized business. Uh, But we have really let that shrunk, and that's an American legacy we need to get back to.
0: So, Tim, that raises a very contemporary – we're having this conversation in New York City. So when I've gotten involved in any economic development work in Connecticut, um, one of the things that I've always believed in that states and municipalities should not be paying big companies to come to their state. They're mobile and – you know, not necessarily loyal, but supporting small businesses not only is more adhesive to a state or municipality, it's a cheaper way of creating a middle class. So having said all that here in New York City, the big news is that Amazon said, okay, I'm taking my marbles Mm -hmm. and I'm going home. What do you think about Uh, the kind of incentives that New York offered Amazon or states in general? And what do you think about Amazon picking themselves up in bolting?
1: So I I share your view uh, that too much is spent, especially by desperate communities, to try to get, you know, some – and I can understand why politicians do it. I can can see the impulse. Although the evidence
0: has shown they've never paid off.
1: Never pay off. And it's – but I – and people should learn that lesson and, and stay away from it, partially because it's so salient. You know, you have all this news about one big company, Amazon, but you – know, and it's hard to report on, you know, 500 businesses mm-hmm. that employ more people than Amazon. Right. Because they're, you know, they're 500.
0: And they're diffuse.
1: They're diffuse. They don't have one press representative. It's not news when they – when three of them close. It, you know, it happens. It's like the air we breathe. Um, it's just it's almost the business equivalent of celebrity reporting, mm-hmm. you know you always report on these big big yeah. stories, and I think politicians get caught up in it, and I think it's a mistake. so I share your your ideas. you know why did Amazon leave? Um, you know the The funny thing is that New York didn't need Amazon, Amazon didn't really need New York. Uh, I think they're shooting themso- I think Amazon is shooting themselves in the foot. I think a company like Google knows that this is where the talent is. And And they're
0: quietly building headquarters and adding jobs. And
1: Yes. The Amazon's whole show and, like, throw money at us or we're not going to come thing backfired. So they're ending up out of, I think, uh, really America's number two uh, tech uh, marketplace. And, you know, it's their own fault for going on this big parade and being so uh, insulted when when people show them any opposition.
0: Yeah. I mean, it feels like a bully. They
1: should have done it just, you know, quietly some Had the conversation. And, yeah, or, or, or not have a whole show and just start buying yeah. buildings and, yeah. you know, doing business. That's how most people do business here in New York, because you buy a building and you start, or you rent a building and you start, start your business. You don't say, hey, listen, I'm here. Where's my money? I mean, that's crazy.
0: Well, and I, what, what I'll do in closing before I ask the last question is really encourage our listeners to read the book, because I think what you've done that is fantastic is... You, despite the fact that you're an academic, you have written a very accessible, smart, understandable that is not presumptive that people understand legal theory or economics and think about how their own actions are impacting what we're doing because we're all dealing with the ramifications. To me, one of the worst is the contribution to inequality, which – You know, I share the idea that that can never be good without Mm -hmm. a solid uh, middle class. So I want to thank you for uh, doing that. So I'm going to close with a question that I ask all our guests but has nothing to do with this theory, uh, with (laughs) with your book. And that is, what's the book that changed your life?
1: Oh, that's a great uh, – you know, many books have changed my life. I'm thinking of one, The Search for Modern China. It's Mm -hmm. sort of random. But it's this long, long history of China. Jonathan Spence is the author. Mm-hmm. And I became very interested in the, the rise and fall of civilizations, uh, the repetitions, the, 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 the way things come back. The patterns. And, yeah, and I kind of wanted us to understand America that mm. way. I wrote this book to tell a story. I wrote this book to help Americans remember our own history, remember our own traditions, remember that we were once a country that was known for equality and, and promotion of the middle class mm-hmm. and of broad-based prosperity. You came to America and, and everyone made it here. And we right. forget our own traditions. And so, yeah, th- this book is told as a, as a story of this this law, the antitrust law, but really the movement to try to control concentrated private power. It feels to me we've lost that vision, and I'm hoping we can, we can get back what is really ours.
0: Well, that's great. Tim, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us, and thank you for writing the book. Thank you. We love hearing your comments and book recommendations. Please keep them coming. Email us at info at justtherightbookpodcast.com or reach out to us on our Facebook or Twitter pages. Just the Right Book Podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres. Our audio engineer is Pat Keogh. And thank you all so much for listening.